I've told people never to use these words. Before I begin, I want to say something. <laughs> um, it doesn't feel right to be at La Sierra and not have Bailey Gillespie or Stuart Tyner around. And I want to talk about that for just a minute. Uh, back in the 70s, Tom Ashlock was Sabbath school director, and he called Bailey and Stuart and Dick into a room and said, I want you to completely redesign youth Sabbath schools. We created Cornerstone Connections and uh, taught it all over the world for four years together, the three of us. It was a, it was a party, it was a learning, it was a growing old together with Jesus time. Later, uh, Dr. Gil Plubel asked Bailey and I to be part of a thing called um, my land, I don't even remember what it was called now. Let's see if we can turn Adventist education in North America upside down and make it positive and productive. I ended up with a marketing section. Bailey ended up with what is called value genesis, a study of the values kids develop. And then with Keith Murray and Gail Rice, I had the privilege of teaching about marketing all over the United States helping schools grow instead of die. And then one year, Randy, you remember, at Mount Vernon Academy, Bailey and I and Stu and Randy and Hyveth Williams and Deb Case and a bunch of others initiated what became known as Giraffe University, a new way to look at finding better ways to teach young people about God. It just seems that over my lifetime, we've had the privilege of working together for God. I can hardly wait to get to heaven and sit down, talk through broken lines of communication and rebuild relationships that earth messed up. It's better together. Okay, I'm done. <laughs> in, 1960, uh, yeah, 19, in 1966, my grandfather had a dream. Now, you've got to know my grandfather, J.C. Dirksen. He actually homesteaded three times, Kansas, New Mexico, and California. He actually traveled across the United States in a prairie schooner, covered wagon. He was a German par excellence. He named my father Victor and could never pronounce his name. It was always Victor. Could never get the V's out. Dad was, Grandpa was that way. But in 1966, I was a student at La Sierra, and Grandpa had a dream. Grandma had died a couple years before, and Grandpa was miserable, absolutely stone-cold miserable. The last thing he wanted to do was be alive. Grandma was gone. What else is there to do in life? He was in his 80s. And at the dream, he was standing on the bank of a large river flowing rapidly with brown water, khaki color. On the far bank was corn. 
Grandpa was a farmer. He won awards with 12 foot tall corn stalks with five ears on each stalk. I mean, he was amazing. And Grandpa describes the dream as looking across that river and seeing corn. Dick, it must have been 30 feet tall and there were a hundred. He was just on and on and on. It's the most beautiful thing he'd ever dreamt of. There were families having picnics just on the edge of the river and the corn. And he said, for all my senses, it was heaven. Then an angel came and stood beside him. Jake, you want to go across? And Grandpa looked at the angel and said, I'd like to go across right now. I'm sure Lena's, oh, I want to go. Please. The angel said, it's going to be tough. The water's fast. The rapids are nasty. You're going to have a hard time. So to help you get across, I want you to pick this up. And the angel reached down into the water and pulled out a sisal rope. Inch in diameter, strong. Had a knot on the end. Jake grabbed the knot. And the angel said, walk on. And my grandfather started walking. Knees, waist, chest, deep water. And then he was swimming, but it seemed as if the rope actually towed him along, pulled him somewhere. And as he went across the river, it was awful. There were rocks, big rocks. He would bump into one and then another, and it was not a pleasant experience. Finally, he had both feet planted on solid terra firma. One more time. And he began to walk slowly up out onto the bank, the far side of the river. And as he did, he lifted the rope from the water. It was 30 inches long, attached to nothing except faith. Four words today. You're valued, that's only one word, valued, accept, grab, surprise. Grandpa is my first illustration of that. Grandpa, who built a two-story house at Five Points behind what now is a pizza store. Grandpa, who dug the foundation for Hull Memorial Auditorium and built most of it. Grandpa, who in my childhood taught me the value of obedience and of honoring God's creation, even if it's a porcupine. <laughs> in El Morro, New Mexico. Grandpa, who weeks before he finally died at age 96, was living on that Conestoga wagon one more time and would beg people, please let me out of this room. I want to walk behind the wagon. Grandpa, whose only dream in life was to get to heaven and be with Jesus and Lena again. It was his only dream. When he died at 96, we were all very sad to see him go. And we can hardly wait to be where his grave will break open 
Yeah, that's going to be fun. There's another story. This one comes from the book of Luke, chapter 18. You can find it in Matthew. You can also find it in Mark. I like the Luke version with a little bit of Mark. As Jesus approached Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard the crowd going by, he asked what was happening. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he called out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Is this one of the first times that Jesus had somebody call him that loudly? Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who led the way rebuked him and told him to be quiet. Blind Bartimaeus wanted to come to Jesus and the church kept him from coming. The people who led the way, the disciples, Peter, Judas, Matthew, all of them. No, keep Bart away. He's just a nasty man. Everybody knows about Bart. Bartimaeus. There are two different ways to look at his name. Bar is son, obviously. Timaeus can be interpreted two different ways depending on which you choose. One is honorable. The other is a filthy man. I take the filthy man version. Bar Timaeus, the blind man, the son of a filthy guy. Nobody wanted to have anything to do with him. The only asset he had was a loud voice. Blind from birth, unable to see, or even imagine what he would see if he could. He was a man who sat outside of the gates of Jericho and pled daily for people to give him something. Something. He made so much noise that... Most of the people spent their time trying to shut him up and get away from the stench of his existence. Bar Timaeus, the son of the filthy one. And now he knows that Jesus is passing by and he begins to shout as loud as he can possibly shout. And yes, he does have the gift of large voice. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. He doesn't ask to be healed. He doesn't ask for arm, alms. All he asks for is mercy. Please, mercy. Why did the people keep him from coming? Oh, one thing, they didn't want Jesus to be filthy like Bar. Bart was a mess. You didn't want to be around him. Besides, They'd already thrown a few coins his way. He could probably get enough for one meal before the day is over. Just leave the guy alone. Jesus has work to do. Last night, Jesus and his entourage slept in a homeless camp two or three miles up the hill from the Jordan. There was nothing there. Jesus slept in the homeless camps all the time, and there were no tents. They just kind of collapsed at the side of the road. And Jesus down there, waking up in the morning, smelling the aromas of fresh fires, getting a drink of cold water, Dutch Brothers coffee. I don't know what all they had in those mornings, dried fish. Jesus gets his men together and his women who were always there to make sure that the guys had food. And they begin to walk up the hill now. And as they get closer and closer, something's happening around Jesus' retinue. Crowds are beginning to gather. You see, it's almost Passover. 
Jesus has brought Lazarus back to life up in Bethany. Everybody knows that there is a conflict, a confrontation coming between the Christ and the Pharisees. This is going to be good, and it's going to be wild. There are Roman soldiers guarding to make sure nothing happens. There are Pharisees and scribes taking notes. There are people running along behind saying, he healed me of leprosy. I can see, I can see. He's got a following of people whose lives are new because they've met this man. Judas is picking up coins. Peter is keeping people out of the way. And as they get close to the gate, Bart begins to cry. Jesus of Nazareth, son of David, have mercy on me. Have mercy. And it gets louder and louder and louder. At a church in Oregon recently, we had a young lady who had been raped by a stepfather. The church refused to give her a shower or anything. In fact, they took away her membership because she had not been chased. When the new pastor came to town a few months ago, he met her by accident at a store downtown. Introduced himself, made a friend, started to build a relationship, and then discovered the history. The people of the church wouldn't let her in. She was not clean enough for their pews. And he said, you come with me, I'll take you in, no problem. And so the next Sabbath morning, he met her outside the church, and the two of them walked in together. Well, I must say, she was not dressed appropriately for church. She didn't have any clothes except what she had. And somebody told her that you better never come to this church dressed like that. This is where God lives. And she walked out. It's been a year. Nobody's seen her since. That was Bart. That was Bart. Blind Bartimaeus. He was blind, but that wasn't the issue. He was of the filthy ones. He was of the people who sat at the gate and made everybody else feel uncomfortable. And Jesus heard him. Ah, so glad it goes on. Jesus stopped and ordered the man to be brought to him. When he came near, Jesus asked him, what do you want me to do for you? I love the fact that Jesus doesn't heal on what he thinks needs to be done. He always gives us a chance to be part of the process. I've learned that so many places around the world. There are physicians that say, you need three of these and two of those and take them quick. And there are others that say, how do you feel when you, when you get up first thing in the morning and put your feet over the edge of the bed? Uh, are your feet swollen? You know, they ask questions. They learn. And Jesus looks blind Bartimaeus and blind eyes and says, what do you want me to do for you? 
Now, the man with the big voice suddenly has a little voice. Lord, I want to see, is all Bart says. And Jesus said to him, then receive your sight. Your faith has made you healed. Does faith do that? Does faith have that kind of power? If I'm holding on to that sisal rope crossing the great river, and as I'm crossing the river, I'm still holding on to the rope, even though I don't know that it's only 30 inches long and doesn't go anywhere, my faith, does my faith actually save me? Does my faith heal me? Can I have so much faith that I can take my blindness and see? Or is this something that requires the presence of God in the process? I've met an awful lot of people who have a lot of faith in themselves. Or in organizations. Or in something they just read. But the people who have transformed my life are the people who have faith in Jesus Christ. And let him do for them what he thinks needs to be done now. Because they recognize in God's sight they are of great value. They accept his gift of love. And they grasp for all their worth. Whatever it is he will do. Whoever he will be. Wherever he will lead them. And then they wait for the surprise of joy that comes along with the process. Bart, Jesus didn't put mud on his eyes. He didn't spit in his eyes. He'd done that with, every, with others. Not this time. Bart, here's your sight. Your faith in me has made you whole. And what does Bart do? You remember the story? Immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus, praising God. And when the people saw it, they praised also. What happens when we get close enough to God that we can sense the intensity of his love and we choose to yield ourselves to him and then grab a hold for whatever ride we have coming? We can't help but follow him. And in the following is the salvation. Now, Jesus and Bart, because Bart now is part of the crowd, and it's interesting, we don't hear Bart anymore. First time I read this, I thought Bart would have said, oh, the sky is blue. <laughs> no, he didn't do anything like that. But I've spent some time with blind people since I first studied this. Have you ever been around a blind person? and tried to have a conversation, it's very uncomfortable. You go to a blind camp, it's uncomfortable because blind people see with their fingers. And so if you're gonna sit down and have a conversation with a blind person, chances are pretty good they're gonna have their fingers in your beard, on your lips, on your nose, on your forehead, on your hair. They're gonna be checking you out. They wanna feel your hands because that's where their eyes are now. Bart comes to Jesus. Jesus crouches down until he's on eye level with Bart. And he says, what do you want me to do for you? 
Master, I, I, would, I would see. What was the first thing Bartimaeus saw? The eyes of the Christ. Can you imagine? Pools of liquid amber perfectly reflecting the love of the Father. Bart looks into those eyes and he has nothing to say. He doesn't say, wow, I can see. He goes, you are the Son of God. And immediately falls right in behind him to come along as part of the family. They walk towards the gate. As they get close, Jesus glances over to the left where the tax collectors are busy collecting all of their money and doing all of the things tax collectors must do. And he glances just in time to see small man Zacchaeus slip through his private stone door in the wall of Jericho. Now there's a where the tax collectors are at their tables, just behind them, of course, are the guards with their weapons. And just behind them, on the wall edge, is a place where Zacchaeus can walk back and forth and check everybody out. It's small enough that he can't do that from down low, but he can do it from up here now and look over everybody's shoulders. And Jesus sees him slip away. And Jesus, who knows Zacchaeus' name, knows his heart, knows that the Spirit has been pulling this man from the first day Zacchaeus went to the Jordan to listen to John the Baptizer. John the Baptizer opened a a little cave in Zacchaeus' heart. Zacchaeus is a tax farmer. He's not a tax collector like Matthew. Tax collectors work for tax farmers. They're guys who collect the money. The tax farmers, they go regularly every three years to Pilate and buy their job at auction. And so Zacchaeus, every three years, he goes to Pilate's judgment hall and he begins to bid. I think in the next three years, my office in Jericho will collect so many shekels. And Pilate says, I think it's going to collect double that. And somebody else comes in and says, well, I'll raise that too. And other people are trying to buy his job. But Zacchaeus is so good at bribing everybody that he has been the tax collector in Jericho forever. And that's because when he gets back to Jericho, yes, he has given three years advance to Pilate. That means he's got to rip off everybody he can rip off as fast as he can possibly do it to get every penny, to get every dollar, to get every shekel, every denarius. Everybody hates Zacchaeus. Everybody. Because he takes advantage of them all. Even blind Bartimaeus hates Zacchaeus. Because when Zacchaeus all of a sudden gets some urge to be nice, he'll toss a few denarii over at Bart. And Bart hears them fall and then gets in the dust and begins looking for them while Zacchaeus roars in laughter, knowing that the small amount he has cast isn't enough to buy breakfast. But he's done his duty of caring for the poor. (laughs) Jesus walks past. What he doesn't see is Zacchaeus running ahead. He gets to the wall of his own house and there there's a giant sycamore that stands right by the wall and 
Zacchaeus skitters up the wall, gets to, begins trying to climb up, finally is able to get on the low-hanging branch. And now small man Zach is just tall enough to be at eye level with the Messiah when he walks by. For Zacchaeus has learned the only way to really see a man's soul is through his eyes. And as Jesus comes, he's looking over here, he's talking to people, he's laughing with a group over there, he's saying hello, he's meeting, and then all of a sudden he stops. And instead of just turning his head, he turns his entire body, looks square into Zacchaeus's eyes, and says, well, Zacchaeus, you might want to come on down. I'm going to stay at your house today. And Zacchaeus just about falls out of the tree. This is a man that everybody hates. Nobody says anything nice to him. You're going to stay at my house? And Zacchaeus is immediately thinking, what will my wife say? Is there enough food to have the servants? That he's, start, he's starting to fix everything real quick. <clears throat> and then he realizes he was told to get out of the tree. And so he drops down, lands on the wall, the stone wall in front of his place. And Jesus leans over, scooches up and sits down next to him on the wall. And Zacchaeus can't stand it anymore. He, he actually falls down, kind of collapses on his knees because he's not good at climbing trees. This is an older man. He's not, he's not sharp at a lot of this stuff. And then Jesus says, I'm really glad I can come to your place, Zach. And suddenly that hole in Zacchaeus' heart opens wide enough to let Jesus in. You love me? You're going to come to my house? You care about me as a person? Now, this is not Bar Timaeus, the son of the filthy man. This is Zacchaeus, the thief, the hated, the one who has gone over to Rome. There's nothing good anybody says about this man ever, except that he sure knows his numbers. And now Jesus and Zacchaeus are sitting together on the, and all of a sudden Zach stands up. I love those words, they're there. All of a sudden Zacchaeus stands up, looks at the people who are laughing at Jesus for being so stupid as to go to Zacchaeus' house. And all the people go quiet as Zach says, today, I will give one half of everything I own to the poor people of Jericho. And the people in the crowd got to go, yeah, right. <laughs> Take him a long time to count that, wouldn't it? And if by chance I have stolen anything from any of you, there starts a little titter, which becomes a roar of laughter. Stolen from any of us? You stole from all of us. I will give you back fourfold whatever we took that was wrong. All you have to do is see Ahmed, he will be at the uh, counter down by the gate and uh, we'll write everything up and I'll take care of that. I'm very sorry, guys. It won't be that way anymore. My name Zacchaeus stands for honest and upright and I will be that way from today forward because I've met Jesus. And somebody in the back begins to clap. And then it becomes a roar. As Jesus helped Zach down, 
and the disciples scratch their heads, and Ahmed runs to the gate with his iPad trying to figure this out. Valued, accept the gift, grab hold, enjoy the surprise. There's one more, very quick. In the village of Bethany, the synagogue chieftain lives up on the top of the hill. He's a Pharisee, his name is Simon. Jesus has healed him of leprosy. He's very proud of that fact. He's called a banquet to bring Jesus in and display the fact that Simon knows Jesus. On his right-hand side is, or left, I forget, is Lazarus. The reason Simon is so proud of having Lazarus there is not just that Jesus brought him back from the dead. No, Jesus healed Lazarus from death. Yes, that's true. But you see, years ago, Simon's sister had three children, and then she and her husband both died, and Simon's been kind of taking care of them. You know, there's Martha, and there's Mary, and then there's Lazarus. And they lived down the hill a little bit. And, man, Mary was pretty. And Simon took advantage of her. And when she became pregnant, Simon sent her off to a Roman garrison in Magdala, where nobody would ever notice if she was or was not pregnant. And Mary was good at what she did. She became wealthy and she came home. And when she came home, everybody in town knew what had happened. Everyone in town knew that when you go to church on Sabbath, that Pharisee guy is the one who did it. Mary still dresses in her garish ways and still has flame red hair. And at the feast, Mary's not been invited. Oh, Lazarus is there. <laughs> Proud dude. Jesus is there on the other side. That's why I'm not sure where they were. And Martha is there. She's the caterer. And then Mary shows up. Mary, daughter. I mean, what can you say? She's a sinner, right? What can you say nice about this woman? Jesus likes her. It's about the only nice thing you can say. She's not the kind of a person that we would really probably hire as a dean at La Sierra. She slips in and does what well-trained harlots do. She begins to bathe the feet, the dusty feet of Jesus with her hair. Flame red, rubbing touching, and then she reaches into a fold of her gown, pulls out a box of alabaster that is beautifully carved and inlaid with mother of pearl. She breaks it with her knife. It cracks open and spills on the feet of Jesus. And Mary, the same person, begins cleaning his feet with the spicknard, which symbolizes royalty. It's the same fragrance David used to put on his beard. She puts it on the feet of the Christ. And in the midst of it all, she begins to weep because she can feel the dissonance in the room. 
Somebody is already calling her nothing but a whore, and somebody else is saying, look at that, that should have been spent for you. And there's all kinds of nasty words going. And then all of a sudden, Jesus reaches down, touches her hand on his foot, and says, Simon, let me tell you a story. The six most powerful words ever said in any language. Let me tell you a story. Jesus did it well. And before he was through that day, Simon had confessed of his pride. Judas had determined to keep his. And Mary, Mary had anointed the feet of Jesus before the crucifixion. The same one that Jesus chose to be the first preacher of his resurrection. You're valuable, loved dearly. I love what uh, Craig read a little while ago. Jesus and his father looking down on earth and saying, oh, I love that guy, love that woman. They love us so much, they just are heartbroken when they see us doing stupid stuff. Would you be willing to go down and find Mary, Bill, Fred, Brenda, Dick, whoever, whosoever, and bring them home? You see, God's love is not dependent upon our status, how many sins we have, what kind they are, what color they are, whether they're at that end or this end of the sin spectrum. He didn't worry about all that. God loves us because of who he is. Ted Appenstall used to say, at the beginning of every single class, there is nothing you can do that will add anything to what Jesus Christ has already done for you. God loves, because he is love. And his love is given freely with the plea that we accept it. And if we do, grasp it. And let him lead us on the adventure of eternity.